Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! So, I mean, it, it, there, there's, there's blood everywhere in these hospitals at the moment. We're seeing almost only trauma cases come through the door and at a scale that's quite difficult to believe. Um, it, it's, it's a bloodbath, as we, as we said before, it's carnage. As the death toll tops 21,000 in Gaza, including over 8,000 children, the bombardment has also led to a growing public health catastrophe as disease spreads due to the lack of clean water and medical care. We'll go to Rafa in southern Gaza for an update. Then concerns grow over a wider regional war in the Middle East as Yemen-based Houthi forces vow to continue their attacks on ships in the Red Sea to show solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. Coordination around the Gaza war among Arab militant groups, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Saudi in Yemen, coordinating together, raising each other's capabilities, facing down the Israelis, challenging the Americans. This is a huge story, and it is totally unrecognized in the American media. Watching the watchdogs, why the West misinterprets Middle East power shifts, will speak with Palestinian-American analyst Rami Khoury. And to investigative journalist James Bamford, he asks in the nation, who's funding Canary Mission inside the doxing operation targeting anti-Zionist students and professors? And we'll look at growing resistance to what some call the Palestine exception to free speech on college campuses. The most prominent uh, discrimination and harassment on campus has been uh, through not only other students and faculty on campus, but the administration's vilification of Palestinians through these university-wide emails that they've been sending. We'll hear from a Barnard College student and a professor there who signed a widely shared statement in solidarity in opposition to the repressive climate on U.S. campuses, it was called. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Gaza's health ministry says at least 241 Palestinians have been killed over the past 24 hours. That's 10 an hour as Israel intensifies its assault on Gaza, where the overall death toll has topped 21,000, including 8,000 children. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, an Israeli drone strike has killed six Palestinians in the Nershamps refugee camp near Tulkarm during an Israeli raid. Al Jazeera reports Israeli forces blocked ambulances from reaching the victims of the strike. The youngest victim was 16 years old. Israeli forces and settlers have killed at least 300 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. 
Egypt's proposed a plan for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. But on Tuesday, Israel's army chief said Israel's military operation in Gaza will continue for, quote, many more months. Hamas has also rejected elements of the Egyptian proposal. On Tuesday, the bodies of about 80 unidentified Palestinians were buried in a mass grave in Rafah in southern Gaza. Israel had seized the bodies in northern Gaza in order to determine if any of them were dead Israeli hostages. Israel then returned the bodies to Gaza through the Kedem Shalom crossing. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has reportedly endorsed expelling all Palestinians from Gaza. Israeli news outlets report Netanyahu told a group of Israeli lawmakers Monday, quote, regarding voluntary immigration, this is the direction we're going in, he said. Palestinian leaders denounced Netanyahu for embracing what they describe as ethnic cleansing. The 11-week Israeli assault has already forced more than 85 percent of Palestinians in Gaza to leave their homes, and many have no homes to return to. Displaced Palestinians say there are no safe places remaining in Gaza. We were displaced. We were bombed by aircraft, and the school was not safe. So we went out, and while we were leaving, there were snipers and people were martyred. We have been out for two days, and the situation has not improved. The plane is bombing from above, and the snipers as well. Israel's bombardment of Gaza has also led to a growing public health catastrophe as disease spreads due to contaminated water supplies, the buildup of untreated sewage and the lack of medical care. Some Israeli officials have openly praised the spread of diseases in Gaza. In November, retired Major General Jura Eiland, who still advises Israel's defense minister, wrote, quote, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer, unquote. The public health crisis in Gaza is also impacting Israeli soldiers. The Times of Israel reports one soldier died after being infected by a harmful fungus in Gaza. At least 10 other Israeli troops were infected after being exposed to soil contaminated with sewage waste. Meanwhile, three more Israeli soldiers have died in Gaza. 154 Israeli soldiers have been killed in Gaza since Israel launched its ground invasion. An 18-year-old Israeli teenager who refused to enlist in the Israeli army has been sentenced to 30 days in prison. Tal Mitnick spoke out against Israel's assault on Gaza before his sentencing Tuesday. I'm standing today in Tel HaShomer base and I am refusing to enlist. I believe that slaughter cannot solve slaughter. The criminal attack on Gaza won't solve the atrocious slaughter that Hamas executed. Violence won't solve violence. And that is why I refuse. Israel's announced it will stop automatically granting visas to employees of the United Nations after it accused the U.N. of being, quote, complicit partners with Hamas. Top United Nations officials have repeatedly called for a ceasefire in Gaza while demanding more humanitarian aid into the besieged territory. The Pentagon saying it intercepted and shot down 12 drone attacks, three anti-ship ballistic missiles and two land attack cruise missiles launched by Yemeni Houthi forces in the Red Sea during a 10-hour period on Tuesday. This comes as concern grows over a wider regional war in the Middle East. The Houthis have vowed to keep carrying out attacks on ships in the Red Sea to show solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. 
in support of the Palestinian people's oppression, who continue to suffer from killings, destruction, siege and starvation. The naval forces of the Yemeni armed forces, with the help of Allah, carried out a targeted operation against the commercial ship MSC United using suitable naval missiles. Ukrainian forces struck a large Russian warship at a port in occupied Crimea on Tuesday in what's been described as one of the most significant attacks against Moscow's Black Sea fleet in months. But the attack comes as Ukrainian officials have acknowledged Russia has seized the frontline town of Mariinka in eastern Ukraine after a month-long battle in the latest setback to Ukraine's failed counteroffensive. Sweden's a step closer to joining the NATO military alliance. On Tuesday, a parliamentary committee in Turkey approved Sweden's application to join NATO. Turkey's full parliament must now vote on the issue, but a vote has not yet been scheduled. Turkey and Hungary are the only NATO nations which have not yet approved Sweden's bid. Last week, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said the final vote hinges on whether the U.S. Congress approves selling 40 F-16 fighter jets to Turkey. Erdogan's also calling on Canada to lift an arms embargo on Turkey. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas, and White House Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall are meeting today with Mexican President AMLO, that's Andres Manuel López Obrador, in Mexico City. Blinken is preparing to discuss what his office has described as border security challenges and, quote, unprecedented irregular migration in the Western Hemisphere, unquote. Andres Manuel López Obrador is expected to call again for the Biden administration to lift sanctions against Cuba and Venezuela, which AMLO says has driven an increase in migration. This comes as a caravan with over 6,000 migrants are heading towards the U.S.-Mexico border. Some participants in the caravan are holding banners that read, quote, Exodus from Poverty, unquote. Other caravan participants said they're fleeing violence at home. This is Jose Santos from Honduras. I came here escaping from the MS-13 criminal gang. I worked as a security guard. MS-13 asked us for money, but we didn't have any. They wanted our ammunition, but as guards, we only received a limited amount of ammunition. They threatened to kill me, not once, but three times. I was scared, so I decided to come to Mexico, hoping I'll be allowed to go to the U.S. In related news, CNN's reporting more than 11,000 people seeking refuge in the United States are waiting in shelters and camps on the Mexican side of the border. Opposition candidates in the Democratic Republic of Congo are accusing the nation's electoral commission of committing massive fraud during last week's election. Initial results show incumbent Felix Shisekedi has a large lead over more than two dozen rivals, including the Nobel Peace Laureate Dr. Dennis Mukwege. Opposition parties have announced plans to defy a ban on election-related protests by staging a march in the capital, Kinshasa, today. In Nigeria, armed groups have killed at least 160 people in a series of attacks on villages in the central Nigerian state of Plateau. Amnesty International criticized the federal government of Nigeria for failing to do more to protect rural communities in the region, which have come under numerous deadly attacks. Japan is moving closer to reopening the world's largest nuclear power plant, which was shut down following the Fukushima nuclear disaster in 2011. 
Earlier today, Japan's nuclear regulator lifted its safety ban on the plant, which is run by TEPCO, that's Tokyo Electric Power. Local government bodies still need to sign off on the plant's reopening. To see our broadcast from Tokyo, go to democracynow.org. The U.S. State Department has placed several prosecutors in Guatemala on a corruption blacklist over their attempts to block Guatemala's president-elect, Bernardo Arevalo, from taking office. Arevalo, who's scheduled to be inaugurated January 14th, has accused his opponents of waging a slow-motion coup d'etat by attempting to overturn his election victory. The longtime New York activist Ralph Pointer has died. Pointer was a retired New York school teacher who was a longtime advocate for political prisoners and a radio host on Pacifica station WBAI here in New York. He was married to the prominent radical attorney Lynn Stewart, who died in 2017. Ralph Pointer helped lead efforts to free Lynn Stewart, who was jailed for four years for distributing press releases on behalf of her jailed client, the Egyptian cleric Omar Abdelrahman. And the acclaimed South Korean actor Lee Sung-kun has died at the age of 48. He starred in the film Parasite, which in 2020 became the first foreign language film to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Police found Lee Sung-kun unconscious in a car in Seoul shortly after his wife had reported that he'd left behind what appeared to be a suicide note. He'd been under investigation for violating South Korea's strict drug laws. He was recently questioned by police for 19 hours. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we had hoped we'd begin today's show in Gaza, where the health ministry says the overall death toll now tops 21,000, including over 8,000 children. But communications in Gaza are now down for the umpteenth time, and neither we nor our colleagues with the Associated Press can reach our guest in Rafa in southern Gaza. As you reported in headlines, the Pentagon is saying it intercepted and shot down 12 drone attacks, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two land attack cruise missiles launched by Houthi forces in the Red Sea during a 10-hour period on Tuesday as concerns grow over a wider regional war in the Middle East. The Yemen-based Houthis have vowed to keep carrying out attacks on ships in the Red Sea to show solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. This comes as the Pentagon said it carried out three strikes on Iraqi territory Monday at President Biden's direction in response to a drone attack on an airbase in Erbil, Iraq, that wounded three U.S. service members, one of them critically. Iraq's government said the U.S. attacks killed one member of the Iraqi security forces and wounded 18 people, including civilians. It condemned the Pentagon's, quote, unacceptable attack on Iraqi sovereignty. Meanwhile, Turkey's military launched airstrikes in northern Iraq and Syria over the weekend, targeting bases, shelters and oil facilities operated by the Kurdish PKK militia. The attacks came after the Turkish defense ministry said 12 of its soldiers were killed in northern Iraq in battles with PKK fighters. Elsewhere, an Israeli airstrike on northern Syria on Monday killed Syed Razi Mousavi, 
a senior advisor in Iran's new Revolutionary Guard Corps, responsible for coordinating Iran's military alliance with Syria. Iran's foreign ministry condemned the attack, saying, quote, Iran reserves the right to take necessary measures to respond to this action at the appropriate time and place. For more on all of this, we're joined in Boston by Rami Khoury, Palestinian-American journalist, senior public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut. His new piece for Al Jazeera is headlined, Watching the Watchdogs, Why the West Misinterprets Middle East Power Shifts. Well, why don't you tell us why the West misinterprets these power shifts, Rami Khoury? And do you see what's happening in Gaza and the West Bank uh, as leading to a wider Middle East war? Uh, thank you for having me, and thanks for the great work you do every morning. <clears throat> the uh, second part of your question, I can pretty surely say that I don't expect a wider war, uh, but wider wars don't usually happen by planning. They often happen by accident, so it could happen, but I don't think so, because it's not, first of all, a wider war isn't going to solve anything. Uh, second of all, uh, people generally on all sides don't want to fight a wider war, and certainly civilian populations are, are against it. Uh, for your first question, <clears throat> the, um, the short answer of why the mainstream media in the U.S. and most of the Western world uh, doesn't uh, follow, analyze, acknowledge what I think are the biggest geostrategic changes taking place in this Middle East region in the last maybe 30, 40 years. The, the short answer is that the U.S. and Israel uh, are joined in a, a kind of subtler colonial assault on Palestinian rights. They have been for half a century. The British and the uh, Zionists started this in, uh, in the 19-teens, and, uh, and then Israel was created, and after 67, uh, the U.S. became the, the main supporter of Israel. So this is a century-long uh, conflict that has pitted Israel, Zionism, and Western supporters uh, against Palestinian rights. Other Arabs got involved, but it's essentially a Palestinian-Israeli-Palestinian-Zionist uh, uh, struggle. And the U.S. doesn't want to acknowledge anything. Uh, the U.S. mainstream media broadly doesn't want to acknowledge anything that doesn't fit the script that the United States has a righteous policy, that the, the Israelis have a moral army, that what they're doing is, is legitimate defense, uh, and that all the other people in the region who challenge them or fight them are either terrorists or, or just, uh, uh, you know, violence-loving uh, Muslims and Arabs beyond uh, uh, any uh, help that anybody can give them. They just love to kill Jews and Americans. So this, this is the kind of nonsense that permeates so much of the mainstream media. Um, and this is uh, why I mentioned in this column uh, that this tremendously important sign that we had just last week uh, really needs to be appreciated. And that sign was that the uh, Yemeni uh, Ansarullah group, or people call them the Houthis, you know, one sign of uh, uh, good reporting is to use the people's proper name. Uh, so Hezbollah, Hamas, Ansarullah, that makes a difference. Uh, and so these three groups, Hezbollah, Hamas, Ansarullah, are part of a regional uh, network of groups, Arab groups, nationally anchored, one in Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Palestine, Ansarullah in Yemen, <clears throat> uh, who coordinate very closely with each other and coordinate 
and get assistance uh, from Iran, just as Israel coordinates closely and gets huge amounts of assistance uh, from the U.S. This is how, you know, the world works. Uh, but the difference is that Hezbollah and Hamas have already shown that they can develop technical, military, and other capabilities that can check the Israeli-American assault on Palestinian rights. Uh, the U.S. and Israel can wipe out the entire Middle East if they want, <clears throat> the entire Arab region with their uh, nuclear weapons and <clears throat> sorry, other, uh, other facilities, uh, but uh, this wouldn't solve anything. Um, but the U.S. and Israel at some point need to acknowledge that the Palestinian people have rights that are equal to the Israeli people, and the two should live side by side, or if they want to live in one state, that's up to them, but probably two uh, adjacent uh, states. The Hezbollah-Hamas-Ansarullah combination... Um, brought us last week to a situation where at one moment, and it's kind of still going on, the U.S. and or Israel were exchanging military fire with Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in uh, Gaza, some other Palestinian groups in the West Bank, Ansarullah in Yemen, the popular mobilization forces, Iranian-backed militant groups in uh, Iraq, and the Syrian government, which is supported by Iran. So the U.S. and Israel were, uh, were actively engaged, small uh, levels, uh, low levels, but actively engaged in military action against six opponents and six different fronts. But those opponents were all coordinating together. And the more important point is that not just that they coordinate together, but we've seen in Hezbollah and Hamas now and uh, others that they are increasing their technical capabilities steadily and significantly. The Israeli, with its Israel government, with this massive attack uh, uh, against Palestine, using uh, over 500, 2,000 pound bombs, uh, which reported yesterday, and other, uh, you know, massive ethnic cleansing, everything they've done, they haven't made any significant gains on their three strategic goals, which is to eliminate Hamas, uh, release the hostages, and to uh, bring about a new political situation uh, in Gaza. So this is quite extraordinary. When you get the two of the most powerful militaries in the world, Israel and the United States, with a lot of other militaries supporting them, unable to achieve basic goals after two and a half months of barbaric uh, attacks, that's pretty significant. Uh, and, the, uh, and the last point I make here is that the, one of the reasons they're not able to make significant gains uh, is that these other groups who are, uh, these Arab groups who are close to Iran, uh, they, they work together uh, in something called the uh, axis of resistance. Um, and uh, this axis of resistance is starting to become much more effective in deterring or checking uh, the Israeli-American military and assaults and or the political uh, demands that they want. Now, we'll see this now in the negotiations that will happen. We're happening now. They're negotiating another exchange of prisoners and hostages and other things. And if there's a peace negotiation that might happen later, you will see the power of this uh, resistance axis manifesting itself politically rather than just militarily. This is a huge, huge development. Uh, 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 Rami Khoury, I wanted to ask you... Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, in the past few days. And one of the 
points that he raised there in terms of the goals of uh, of Israel in the assault on Gaza is to me a completely new point that he's raised here. He said that not only do they want to destroy uh, Hamas and demilitarize Gaza, but that they want to de-radicalize the Palestinians. Uh, in essence, uh, that sounds to me is to stamp out all potential opposition uh, to Israel in the future. Nothing about an, a, a long-term uh, settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. I'm wondering your, how you reacted to that uh, opinion piece. Uh, I, I don't take it very seriously. I don't take anything uh, Benjamin Netanyahu says these days very seriously. This is a guy on the run. He's running from the law, his own law in Israel. Uh, and the only way that he can stay out of jail is to keep fighting, uh, make himself indispensable by being a tough guy. And all it's doing is killing more Israelis, killing more hostages. The death uh, level among Israeli soldiers uh, in the fighting in Gaza is getting higher and higher. 10, 15 die on some days now. Um, so uh, I don't take uh, anything he says very seriously, neither uh, should anybody else. Uh, he, he is the prime minister of Israel, and he does uh, head this uh, barbaric coalition of right-wing fascists that's been let loose now in the West Bank and in Gaza and other places. Uh, but I would also make the uh, more important point <clears throat> that when he says that he wants to de-radicalize Palestine. This is in keeping with a century of Zionist lies and propaganda and PR and spin, which the Israelis now do through their government. They have a, a, a ministry for international um, propaganda. And one of their key propaganda techniques, nonstop since the 1920s or 30s, has been to associate any of their foes in the region, whether it's Palestinians or Iranians or Gamal Abdel Nasser or Saddam Hussein or Qaeda or anybody who they might not like in the region, they link them with the most uh, awful uh, person or group that is uh, most awful for people in the West. So uh, with the Palestinians, they, they, Netanyahu t t has compared them to ISIS, to Qaeda, to Hitler, uh, to, you know, any, he didn't compare him to the Khmer Rouge, but he probably will if you give him time. He, to any group that does terrible things around the world, he says that's what the Palestinians uh, are like. And the reality is if you go to any place in Palestine, including Gaza, and you sit with ordinary people, you see that this is a bunch of nonsense. But this is their strategy. The, one of the critical things that's happening now, <clears throat> and I'm working on a, a long article on this that will come out soon, is that along with the ability of the resistance axis and other and popular support, by the way, that they have a lot of popular support in the region, as polling shows us, including 90% of people in, in Saudi Arabia don't want to make peace with uh, Israel until the Israelis make peace with the Palestinians. Uh, and Hamas's popularity has risen. But uh, along with this major development, uh, which, which I mentioned. The second one, which I think is absolutely critical and explains a lot of the stuff that's happening, not just in the region, but here in the United States, where Palestinians are, you know, thrown out of their jobs because of a tweet they did two years ago, or for wearing a, a scarf that is part of their identity, or for calling for a ceasefire. People are, uh, Palestinians are punished for this. This is because this century-long legacy of Zionist and then Israeli government public relations, 
spin, diversion, lies, exaggerations, distortions. It's still going on, but it doesn't work as well. They don't fool the world like they used to because everything they do is out in the open. And you go to your social media and you see everything that the Israelis are doing. It's all now being documented. Files are being prepared for the International Criminal Court. So this is why the Israelis become uh, extremely more violent and more outrageous in their political uh, and, and their and their political uh, statements, and it also explains why I believe that they've focused heavily on the anti-Semitism accusations, which, of course, anti-Semitism and the Holocaust are seen as like the worst human crimes uh, in modern history, uh, even though anti-Semitism goes way back. Uh, so they they. They're focusing a lot on anti-Semitism. They accuse people of being anti-Semitic or terrorists um, and because most of their other arguments don't work anymore. So this is a really important moment. That's why it's so important now for a credible group of people, not the United States government, which is uh, not credible in this, but a credible group of people that includes the U.S., but not run by the U.S., put together some kind of serious proposal to stop the fighting, <clears throat> get the prisoners and hostages exchange is released and start a serious political negotiation that can move the Palestinians and the Israelis and the whole region towards a negotiated uh, permanent peace agreement. Uh, it's very hard to do with the to, existing governments. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Saudi Arabia and the 90 percent support that for the axis of resistance within the country. Could you comment on Saudi Arabia's uh, role right now, for instance, refute uh, declining to join the coalition that the United States is trying to set up to protect shipping in the in the Red Sea. Uh, uh, what do you make of Saudi Arabia's stance right now? Well, Saudi Arabia waged war against Yemen for five years with American and British technical support, refueling and intelligence and all this stuff. And they lost. They were driven out. The Saudis had to get out of Yemen. The Emiratis got out before because they're even less efficient at warfare. <clears throat> and uh, the Emiratis are hunkered down in South Yemen trying to set up some kind of uh, new uh, country or something there. We don't know what they're doing. Uh, the Saudis got out. Uh, they, so they understand the capabilities of Ansar Allah and the Yemeni people. Um, uh, over time, the Yemenis have defeated almost every single person who has tried to come into their country and dominate them or occupy them or order them around. So that's one uh, f uh, fact. The second fact is the United States is, uh, is radioactive politically uh, in the Middle East and in most of the global south. I would say about 80% of the population of the entire world wants nothing to do with Joe Biden or his um, uh, amateur, uh, you know, State Department uh, and Defense Department uh, leaders, uh, and even the uh, uh, Defense Department in the U.S. is hesitant to get into any kind of military interaction uh, in Yemen because they understand how difficult it is. So the Saudis understand this as well. They don't want to be sucked into some uh, uh, cockamamie American a plan drawn up uh, in some uh, underground bunker in Iowa or Kansas, I don't know where these things are, where they come up with these incredible uh, ideas. I'm old enough to remember the 1960s and 70s when I was in college and until today. The U.S. has tried four or five times 
over the last 60 years uh, that I've been a journalist to come up with coalitions of Israelis, Americans, and Arabs against some bad guy in the region. Uh, it could be Iraq, it could be uh, Iran, it could be Qaeda, it could be Nasser, it could be the communists. It changes over time. Every time they've tried to do this, it doesn't work because the people running American foreign policy do not have the fundamental decency or strategic knowledge to understand that you can't go into an Arab country where 90% of the people support the Palestinians and want the Palestinians to live peacefully with an Israeli state. We're not against an Israeli Jewish majority state, but it has to live with Palestinians peacefully. 90% of people across most of the region want Palestinian rights to be resolved. And they don't want 25 American bases all around the region, which is one reason people in Iraq are shooting at American bases in Iraq and Syria. And the, you can't get Arab governments to just run roughshod over their people and say, the hell with you, we're going to make an alliance with Israel, we're going to make an alliance with the U.S. They've learned the hard way uh, that the, the populations in the Arab countries are not perpetually docile. We've had 10 years of uprisings from 210 to 220, and there's still things happening in many uh, Arab uh, countries. Uh, but there is no a, a realistic way that you can get serious Arab governments to go into an alliance with the U.S. and Israel, uh, whether it's to uh, sh protect shipping or to do anything else. The way you protect shipping in the uh, Red Sea is you stop the assault on Gaza. That's what the Yemenis have made clear. They're only doing this. They're only firing at Israeli-linked ships because of what Israel's doing in Gaza. They said, stop the assault, the genocide on Gaza. We'll stop shooting. It's in, it's in Yemen's interest to have the ships come and go. Um, so these are fundamental common sense uh, elements of foreign policy, which for some odd reason um, do not pertain in Washington. Washington doesn't know how, broadly speaking, doesn't know how to engage in foreign policy. They use their warfare capabilities, they use sanctions, they veto stuff at the UN, they make threats, they try to come up with these grandiose coalitions, and most of these have failed since Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, today, they, f they don't work, and they keep trying them. Um, it, it's very puzzling. This is really one of the great puzzles that American political scientists and, and psychiatrists need to study. Why does the U.S. refuse to see realities around the world until they're defeated and they get out and then they, you know, negotiate with the Viet Cong, they negotiate with the Taliban, uh, and they'll negotiate with Hamas as they negotiated with Arafat and the PLO. You're going to see American officials sitting with Hamas, I would say six, eight months down the road probably. They start quietly meeting in cafes in Vienna and stuff. And then, so th th there's something about American foreign policy that's formulated in the public sphere that is both irrational and ineffective. And it's largely because uh, the people doing it do not understand how the world works and respond to political, financial, electoral pressures in their own constituencies. The political leaderships in the U.S., uh, are highly deficient in uh, conducting a moral uh, foreign policy, but they're, they're highly efficient at conducting a profitable mercantile electoral policy where they get votes, where they get support for advertising, where they get 
favorable media. And this is a tragedy uh, for the United States, which tries to tell the world that it is for human rights and decency, equal rights. And the world believed this for 30, 40, 50 years, but doesn't believe it anymore. And Gaza is the uh, kind of the exclamation mark uh, on this, where the U.S. actively supports this genocide, will not do a ceasefire, uh, and uh, therefore this is the consequence, and the Saudis don't want anything to do with this. Rami Khoury, I want to thank you for being with us, Palestinian-American journalist, senior public policy fellow at the American University of Beirut. We'll link to your piece in Al Jazeera, headlined Watching the Watchdogs, Why the West Misinterprets Middle East Power Shifts, speaking to us from Boston. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, we'll go to James Bamford, who has a new piece in The Nation magazine, then a professor at Columbia University. And we'll hear from a student at Barnard um, talking about what's happening and censorship on college campuses. Stay with us. This is my winter song to you. The storm is coming soon, it rolls in from the sea. My voice will beacon in the night, my words will be a light to carry you to me. Is love alive? 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 Just cannot grow beneath the winter snow, or so I have been told. They say we're buried far, just like a distant star. I said, Winter Song, performed by Leslie Odom Jr. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We look now at what some are calling the Palestine exception to free speech and academic freedom on college campuses across the United States. Soon we'll hear from a student and professor at Barnard. But we begin with a new report by longtime investigative journalist James Bamford in a series for The Nation on Israel's spying and covert actions in the United States against pro-Palestinian students, supporters and groups. It's headline, the latest piece, Who is Funding Canary Mission? inside the doxing operation targeting anti-Zionist students and professors. Last month, Jim Bamford wrote a piece headlined Israel's War on American Student Activists. He's joining us now from Washington, D.C. James Bamford, welcome back to Democracy Now! Uh, tell us what the Canary Mission is. Well, it's a very massive uh, program that's been going on for years and years. Uh, it's secretly run out of Israel, and the purposes to uh, blacklist and dox uh, students, professors, and largely anybody that uh, uh, disagrees largely with Israel or is pro-Palestinian. Uh, um, many, many people uh, suddenly wake up and they find out uh, people are calling them and saying, your name is on a blacklist, uh, uh, the uh, Canary Mission blacklist. And, and, you know, it's designed to intimidate these people to get them to stop uh, joining uh, pro-Palestinian groups or to uh, stop being activists and to uh, uh, 
comply with uh, whatever the, the uh, people behind Canary Mission wants, and that's basically to silence them. And the threat is that if you don't be silent, then, uh, you know, your name's going to go on the blacklist. And if you go look for a job when you get out of uh, when you graduate or if you're trying to uh, rise up in the uh, profession, uh, professional ranks or a professorship, um, it's going to be blocked because your name's on this list and it's almost impossible to get off the list. So that's just one of the the many ways that the uh, Israeli government has been. Uh, pushing the uh, American public basically to steer away from uh, pro-Palestinian activism. But how do you know that the Israeli government runs the Canary Mission, and why is it called the Canary Mission? Well, I don't know why it's called Canary Mission. It has something to do with canaries in the the mine or something like that. Yeah, I guess so. Um, The... uh, the organization that runs it is very, very secret. Um, the two of the organizations that looked into it was uh, the Jewish Forward magazine and uh, the Israeli newspaper Haratz. And they determined that uh, it was being run secretly from a, a, a place in Israel, um, a very secret place in Israel, and that there was a, a rabbi behind it. Tracing all these links back is very difficult, but that's where they traced it to this, uh, this, uh, these people in, um, in, in Israel that were basically running it. A lot of the funding comes from, uh, and again, this is from Haratz and also from the forward, uh, the, uh, a lot of the funding comes from uh, American uh, wealthy uh, Jewish Americans and uh, Jewish American foundations, uh, millions of dollars and so forth. Um, so that's where a lot of the funding comes from. The Israeli uh, government gets involved because they use uh, Canary Mission as a tool. So if uh, people are coming over from the United States, uh, either Jewish or Palestinian, they're maybe going to visit families. Um, they look at Canary Mission. They actually have it there and they look at it and they'll uh, kick people out of Israel. They'll land at the airport, they'll be questioned, and they'll uh, be questioned because their name is on Canary Mission, and then uh, be uh, deported, uh, held in uh, confinement for, a, a, you know, a couple of days or whatever, and then deported. That's happened numerous times to uh, to people. Again, they try keeping secret the fact that they're using Canary Mission, but a number of the uh, professors and students who have been thrown out have seen that their name is on the uh, their the uh, guards at the airport or the inspectors are checking their names off the uh, uh, Canary Mission list. So, um, so there's a heavy involvement of the Israeli government in there. In, in this, it's run by uh, uh, mysterious Israelis and it's funded by pro-Israeli uh, money in the United States. So, it, the Israeli uh, Israel has its uh, fingers all over Canary Mission. And, and James uh, Bamford, could you talk about the the reasoning and the context in which they created uh, uh, online profiles? Canary Mission did for members of the Harvard Crimson's editorial board, a student newspaper. Sure. The uh, when the soon after uh, October seventh, the attack, uh, the student newspaper um, came out. Well, there were about thirty three organizations that supported a statement, uh, basically saying. 
this all didn't start on on uh, October seventh. This, this these activities have been going on for a long time. The the fighting between Israel and and Palestine, with uh, the Palestinians obviously being on the losing side of uh, the war against them by the Israelis. So they were basically saying that, look, it didn't just start uh, on October 7th. Well, that created a storm of, um, of opposition. And almost immediately, almost all the people involved uh, uh, found themselves on a Canary Mission. Even people tangentially involved that happened to sign this uh, this letter. So um, that's how it works. You know, you you uh, you want to intimidate these people uh, into not being an activist. Uh, then you create this blacklist and doxing uh, that tells where they are and who they are and, and, and basically creates a, uh, a uh, uh, dossier of them on this list. And so Jim, Jim, you don't want to get on happen, the list. You don't didn't activist. that happen when uh, the Harvard Crimson had an editorial supporting BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions? Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, you know, any it's not just uh, at Harvard. It's uh, schools all over the United States. And uh, Harvard was one perfect example when they had that student letter come out and it was published in the Harvard Crimson. Uh, a lot of the people who were on that uh, who signed that letter uh, ended up on on the uh, blacklist uh, uh, for Canary Mission. So, again, it's a, it's a tool for intimidation. And it, a lot of times it works. And who are some of the prominent American donors who are involved in funding this effort? Well, it was very difficult to find that uh, because it's secret who uh, uh, donates money to the organization, largely secret. There was a, uh, uh, a mistake some group made on, on a tax form. And what that showed was uh, at least one of the groups uh, was the the Diller family in, in uh, California, they're one of the wealthiest uh, families in California, billionaires. And they had donated $100,000 uh, to the front organization of, uh, of uh, Canary Mission. It's a thing called uh, 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 Megamot Shalom. It's a, basically a front organization in Israel. And so what they did was they donated $100,000 through... Uh, uh, the Jewish Committee, uh, Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco. And then from there, it went to another organization, uh, the Central Fund for Israel, which is set up in New York, um, because if they send the money directly to Israel, they don't get a tax advantage. So by sending it through this sort of uh, uh, front organization, the Central Fund for Israel or Central Fund of Israel in New York, uh, then they get a tax advantage, and then the central fund of Israel just forwards the money to uh, Megamot Shalon, the the uh, front com- uh, front organization for Canary Mission, and then it goes to Canary Mission. And again, this is very difficult to uh, 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 figure out because the there's so many uh, obstacles to trying to find out how the money actually goes from these uh, wealthy individuals and organizations to uh, this uh, uh, group in in um, Israel. You're saying the Canary and Mission so, should have to sign up as a foreign agent? Well, yeah, uh, I'm saying that the uh, the people who are, first of all, this is a 
clandestine organizations, very secretive. It's hidden behind a front company in, or a front organization in Israel, and it's being used by the Israeli uh, intelligence to find people that they could uh, uh, deny entry at the airport and deport and so forth. So this is an organization that's secret. It's being used by the Israeli government uh, to the detriment of American citizens. So if you're contributing to it, uh, you could be considered a uh, uh, contributing to a, uh, a foreign en- entity, and uh, you could be considered an agent of a foreign government. So uh, those are issues that should be looked into. You know, I've been doing all these stories. I've, I've talked to numerous FBI agents, and the F- FBI agents uh, are fully in favor of actually taking cases. The problem is once they try to bring these cases up the uh, up the channels to the uh, uh, Justice Department, nothing ever happens. So well, Jim, we're no going to have to what it is. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we're going to be speaking with a Barnard professor. But you do write about a Columbia University law school professor, Catherine Frankie, who at one time sat on the Academic Advisory Council steering committee of Jewish Voice for Peace. Upon her landing in Tel Aviv, you write an official at the airport showed her what appeared to be her canary mission profile. After being held in detention for 14 hours, she was deported and informed that she would be permanently banned from Israel. Just one example. Uh, Jim Bamford, want to thank you for being with us. Investigative journalist well known for exposing National Security Agency, the CIA. New York Times has called him the nation's premier journalist on the subject of the NSA. The New Yorker called him the NSA's chief chronicler. We'll link to your series in the nation, including the last one, Who is Funding Canary Mission? This is Democracy Now! Back with a Barnard professor in a moment. Slebi here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We're, we're going to a Barnard professor, but we just learned that we're joined now, if we can reach him, by Akram El Satari, a Gaza-based journalist, talking to us from Rafa in southern Gaza. It's so hard to get um, him that we want to go directly to him if, in fact, he's on the line. Akram, are you there? Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Can you just tell us what's happening right now in Rafah and in southern Gaza? 
Well, it's extremely difficult to describe how difficult and volatile the situation in southern Gaza, Rafah and Khan Yunis area in particular. The area has been subjected to a complete shutdown of all communication and a comprehensive jam of all communication, including the ESIMs, that the Israeli authorities learned that the Palestinians using them to take and the truth to the world. The is heavier than every few seconds, a very heavy bombardment, very large destruction. I have just learned that the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, Al-Amal Hospital, Al-Amal means hope. Al-Amal Hospital was just hit. Around 22 people were killed because of that bombardment, and the Israeli occupation army is still bombarding the whole area. In Rafah, in Khan Yunis, in Deir al-Balah, in the Gaza central area, in Nusayrat, al-Maghazi, al-Buraj, and also Juhr al-Dik area. So it's a very heavy, and it's a very heavy, staying bombardment One ton missiles, two ton missiles are hitting the houses and destroying whole blocks sometimes. Can you t how difficult uh, I, I can't imagine how difficult it is for you as a journalist working in Gaza to be able to report. Could you talk about some of the uh, the problems that you face? Well, one of the problems that I'm facing is that this complete lack of communication. We scheduled a meeting for your good selves. It was supposed to be starting around two hours ago. And because of that complete uh, complete blackout of the communication, we could I could not join you. To the journal becomes the first and foremost priority. Journalists are people. Journalists are fathers. Journalists are brothers. Journalists are, uh, are mothers. Journalists are supporting their friends. And trust me, I personally, I've been struggling to live. I've been moving from one area to another. I was asked to move from where I live to another place. Then I was asked to move from that place to another place. So the whole Palestinians and journalists in, in particular, this is extremely Survival becomes different. You don't know when they're going to hit. You don't know who they're going to hit. You don't know the reason of why they're hitting. But you might end up being targeted by them. Now you see the people walking down the streets. It's like people are going now uncertain. They're confused. They are in fear because of the ongoing bombardment. And they end up killed even when they're walking, when they're sleeping, when they're trying to secure the food. The situation is there. And when it comes to the journalists, I was today in Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis, Nasser Medical Complex. I saw the journalists waiting because they don't have any communication whatsoever. They have been struggling to secure whatever connection they can. They, I, me and three other journalists went to the in the hope that we would find connection, find internet connection. We went down, we were trying now, we could not make a connection till a few seconds ago when I could do a connection thanks to one international ESIM that I have. So it's a, it's a continuous struggle to live, it's a continuous struggle to survive, and it's a continuous struggle to secure the very basic need journalists and their families as well. So it's no more a professional duty. So a professional and a humanitarian duty as well. And the, 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 the journalists are torn apart between their duty towards their families and their duty also toward their career. So why do you do it, Akram al-Satari? Akram. Well, 
It looks like we lost Akram Al-Satari. We're going to try to get him back on, and we're going to post that interview at democracynow.org. He is a Gaza-based journalist, incredibly brave, very difficult to get this connection, uh, talking to us from Rafa in southern Gaza. We're going to end now with a Barnard professor and student. As we continue to look at what some are calling the Palestine exception to free speech and academic freedom on college campuses across the United States, a New York Times story this past weekend noted, quote, a sustained anti-war protest like the one against the Gaza invasion has not been seen for decades, unquote. But many schools have tried to shut down students and teachers who comment on Gaza or call for a ceasefire. In one of the latest developments, professors at Syracuse universities say upper-level administrators surveilled, harassed, and intimidated undergraduates peacefully gathering for a study-in in support of Palestine earlier this month. So they issued a statement of solidarity and opposition to the repressive climate on U.S. campuses. That's what the letter was called. Sign by more than 900 educators at this point nationwide, and the list is growing. In a minute, we'll be joined by a professor from Barnard College, sister school to Columbia. New York Civil Liberties Union recently sent a letter to the president of Barnard to protest a new policy that requires departments to submit content for their websites for approval by the Office of the Protest. Provost. Democracy Now! spoke with Sophia O'Brien, a Barnard College student and student organizer with Columbia University Chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. The most prominent... Uh discrimination and harassment on campus has been uh, through not only other students and faculty on campus, but the administration's vilification of Palestinians through these university-wide emails that they've been sending. This is not only vilifying us as student groups that are advocating for an end to the violence as it ensues, but even allowing professors and adults that have very prominent uh, positions in the university to speak so harshly against us and call for harm against students of color that are advocating for Palestine and and with impunity we have we have uh, documented hundreds of harassment complaints um, because the administration hasn't um, helped us at all with these harassment cases so that's Barnard College student Sophia O'Brien, organizer with Columbia University Chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. For more, we're joined by Pramila Nadison, a professor of history at Barnard College, also co-director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women and author of the recent book, Care, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor Nadison. We just have a minute, then we will do a post-show interview and post it at democracynow.org. But if you can talk about what's happening on campus and why you signed this letter. What we've seen, Amy, over the past couple of months is a whole series of strategies that universities have been have deployed, including Barnard College and Columbia University, to um, censor student and faculty speech and curtail academic freedom. This includes the suspension of Students for Justice in Palestine and um, and Jewish Voice for Peace on campus. 
the cancellation of events, the policing of content on departmental websites, as you've mentioned, the presence of NYPD on campus. And this relates back to what you started with, and that is the Palestine exception. Um, what universe, what Barnard College has been doing is actually writing new policy as a way to then retroactively decide that events have, are unauthorized or in fact do not follow procedure. And I think there's some really critical issues here. And one of the critical issues is how are decisions at the university made? A lot of these have been made unilaterally without consultation by faculty or students and is in fact a violation of the university's own conduct guidelines. And clearly there's a tremendous amount of influence by trustees, administrators, alumni, and donors who are making decisions about what kinds of speech ought to take place on college campuses and what can and cannot be posted. We're talking on to Barnard College professor Pramila Nadison. We want to thank you so much for being with us. We're going to do part two at democracynow.org. Felt it was critical to get in at the Gaza journalist. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.